Chapter Five of Arizona Nights by Stephen Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Drive. A cry awakened me. It was still deep night. The moon sailed overhead. The stars shone in wavering like candles, and a chill breeze wandered in from the open spaces of the desert. I raised myself on my elbow, throwing aside the blankets and the canvas tarpaulin. Forty other indistinct, formless bundles on the ground all about me were sluggishly astir. Four figures passed and repassed between me and a red fire. I knew them for the two cooks and the horse wranglers. One of the latter was grumbling. Didn't get in till moon up last night, he growled. Might as well trade my bed for a lantern and be done with it. Even as I stretched my arms and shivered a little, the two wranglers threw down their tin plates with a clatter, mounted horses, and rode away in the direction of the thousand acres or so known as the pasture. I pulled on my clothes hastily, buckled in my buckskin shirt, and dove for the fire. A dozen others were before me. It was bitterly cold. In the east the sky had paled the least bit in the world, but the moon and stars shone on bravely and undiminished. A band of coyotes was shrieking desperate blasphemies against the new day, and the stray herd, awakening, was beginning to bawl and bellow. Two crater-like Dutch ovens, filled with pieces of fried beef, stood near the fire. Two galvanized water buckets, brimming with soda biscuits, flanked them. Two tremendous coffee pots stood guard at either end. We picked us each a tin cup and a tin plate from the box at the rear of the chuck wagon, helped ourselves from a Dutch oven, a pail, and a coffee pot, and squatted on our heels as close to the fire as possible. Men who came too late borrowed the shovel, scooped up some coals, and so started little fires of their own about which new groups formed. While we ate, the eastern sky lightened. The mountains under the dawn looked like silhouettes cut from the slate-colored paper. Those in the west showed faintly luminous. Objects about us became dimly visible. We could make out the windmill, and the adobe of the ranch houses, and the corrals. The cowboys arose one by one, dropped their plates into the dishpan, and began to hunt out their ropes. Everything was obscure and mysterious in the faint gray light. I watched Windy Bill nearer his tarpaulin. He stooped to throw over the canvas. When he bent, it was before daylight. When he straightened his back, daylight had come. It was just like that, as though someone had reached out his hand to turn on the illumination of the world. The eastern mountains were fragile. The plain was ethereal, like a sea of liquid gases. From the pasture we heard the shoutings of the wranglers, and made out a cloud of dust. In a moment the first of the remuda came into view, trotting forward with the free grace of the unburdened horse. Others followed in procession, those near sharp and well-defined, those in the background more or less obscured by the dust, now appearing plainly, now fading like ghosts. The leader turned unhesitatingly into the corral, after him poured the stream of the remuda, two hundred and fifty saddle-horses, with an unceasing thunder of hoofs. Immediately the cook camp was deserted. The cowboys entered the corral. The horses began to circle around the edge of the enclosure as around the circumference of a circus ring. The men, grouped at the center, watched keenly, looking for the mounts they had already decided on. In no time each had recognized his choice, and, his loop trailing, was walking toward the part of the revolving circumference where his pony dodged. Some few whirled the loop, but most cast it with a quick flip. It was really marvelous to observe the accuracy with which the noose would fly, past a dozen tossing heads and over a dozen backs, to settle firmly about the neck of an animal, perhaps in the very center of the group. But again, if the first throw failed, it was interesting to see how the selected pony would dodge, double back, twist, turn, and hide to escape second cast, and it was equally interesting to observe how his companions would help him. They seemed to realize that they were not wanted, and would push themselves between the cowboy and his intended mount with the utmost boldness. 
and the thick dust that instantly arose, and with the bewildering thunder of galloping, the flashing change of grouping, the rush of the charging animals, recognition alone would seem almost impossible. Yet in an incredibly short time each had his mount, and the others, under convoy of the wranglers, were meekly winding their way out over the plain. There until time for a change of horses, they would graze in a loose and scattered band, requiring scarcely any supervision. Escape? Bless you, no. That thought was the last in their minds. In the meantime, the saddles and bridles were adjusted. Always in a cowboy string of from six to ten animals, the boss assigns him two or three broncos to break into the cow business. Therefore, each morning we could observe a half-dozen or so men gingerly leading wicked-looking little animals out to the sand to take the pitch out of them. One small black belonging to a cowboy called the judge used more than to fulfill expectations of a good time. Go to him, judge, someone would always remark. If he ain't going to pitch, I ain't going to make him, the judge would grin as he swung aboard. The black would trot off quite calmly and in a most matter-of-fact way, as though to shame all slanderers of his lamb-like character. Then as the bystanders would turn away, he would utter a squeal, throw down his head, and go at it. He was a very hard bucker, and made some really spectacular jumps, but the trick in which he based his claims to originality consisted in standing on his hind legs at so perilous an approach to the perpendicular that his rider would conclude he was about to fall backwards, and then suddenly springing forward in a series of stiff-legged bucks. The first maneuver induced the rider to loosen his seat in order to be ready to jump from under, and the second threw him before he could regain his grip. "'And they say a horse don't think,' exclaimed an admirer. But as these were broken horses, save the mark. The show was over after each had had his little fling. We mounted and rode away, just as the mountain peaks to the west caught the rays of a sun we should not enjoy for a good half-hour yet. I had five horses in my string, and this morning rode that C.S. horse, Brown Jug. Brown Jug was a powerful and well-built animal, about fourteen-two in height, and possessed of a vast enthusiasm for cow work. As the morning was frosty, he felt good. At the gate of the water corral we separated into two groups. The smaller, under the direction of Jed Parker, was to drive the mesquite in the wide flats. The rest of us, under the command of Homer, the roundup captain, were to sweep the country even as far as the base of the foothills near Mount Graham. Accordingly, we put our horses to the full gallop. Mile after mile we thundered along at a brisk rate of speed. Sometimes we dodged in and out among the mesquite bushes, alternately separating and coming together again. Sometimes we swept over grassy plains apparently of illimitable extent. Sometimes we skipped and hopped and buck-jumped through and over little gullies, barrancas, and other sorts of malpai, but always without drawing rein. The men rode easily, with no thought to the way nor care for the footing. The air came back sharp against our faces. The warm blood stirred by the rush flowed more rapidly. We experienced a delightful glow. Of the morning cold, only the very tips of our fingers and the ends of our noses retained a remnant. Already the sun was shining low and leveled across the plains. The shadows of the canyons modeled the hitherto flat surfaces of the mountains. After time we came to some low hills helmeted with the outcrop of a rocky escarpment. Hitherto they had seemed a termination of Mount Graham. But now, when we rode around them, we discovered them to be separated from the range by a good five miles of sloping plain. Later we looked back and would have sworn them part of the Dos Cabezas system. Did we not know them to be at least eight miles' distance from that rocky rampart? It is always that way in Arizona, spaces develop of whose existence you had not the slightest intimation, hidden in apparently plain services or valleys and prairies. At one sweep of the eye you embrace the entire area of an eastern state, but nevertheless the reality as you explore it foot by foot proves to be infinitely more than the vision has promised. 
Beyond the hill we stopped. Here our party divided again, half to the right and half to the left. We had ridden, up to this time, directly away from camp. Now we rode a circumference of which headquarters was the center. The country was pleasantly rolling and covered with grass. Here and there were clumps of soapweed. Far in a remote distance lay a slender dark line across the plain. This we knew to be mesquite, and once entered, we knew it too, would seem to spread out vastly. And then this grassy slope, on which we now rode, would show merely as an insignificant streak of yellow. It is also like that in Arizona. I have ridden in succession through grassland, brushland, flowerland, desert. Each in turn seemed entirely to fill the space of the plains between the mountains. From time to time Homer halted us and detached a man. The business of the latter was then to ride directly back to camp, driving all cattle before him. Each was in sight of his right and left-hand neighbor. This was constructed a dragnet, whose meshes contracted as home was neared. I was detached. When of our party only the cattlemen and Homer remained. They would take the outside. This was the post of honor, and required the hardest riding, for as soon as the cattle should realize the fact of their pursuit, they would attempt to break past the end and up the valley. Brown Jug and I congratulated ourselves on an exciting morning in prospect. Now wild cattle know perfectly well what a drive means, and they do not intend to get into a round-up if they can help it. Were it not for the two facts, that they are afraid of a mounted man, and cannot run quite so fast as a horse, I do not know how the cattle business would be conducted. As soon as a band of them caught sight of any one of us, they curled their tails and away they went, at a long easy lope that a domestic cow would stare at in wonder. This was all very well. In fact, we yelled and shrieked and otherwise uttered cow calls to keep them going, to get the cattle started, as they say. But pretty soon a little band of the many scurrying away before our thin line and began to bear farther and farther to the east. When in their judgment they should have gained an opening, they would turn directly back and make a dash for liberty. Accordingly, the nearest cowboy clapped spurs to his horse and pursued them. It was a pretty race. The cattle ran easily enough, with long springy jumps that carried them over the ground faster than appearances would lead one to believe. The cowpony, his nose stretched out, his ears slanted, his eyes snapping on the joy of the chase, flew fairly belly to earth. The rider sat slightly forward, with the cowboy's loose seat, a whirl of dust, strangely insignificant against the immensity of a desert morning, rose from the flying group. Now they disappeared in a ravine, only to scramble out again the next instant, pace undiminished. The rider merely rose slightly and threw up his elbows to relieve the jar of the rough gully. At first the cattle seemed to hold their own, but soon the horse began to gain. In a short time he had come abreast of the leading animal. The latter stopped short with a snort, dodged back, and set out at right angles to his former course. From a dead run the pony came to a stand in two fierce plunges, doubled like a shot, and was off on the other tack. An unaccustomed rider would have lost his seat. The second dash was short. With a final shake of the head, the steers turned to the proper course in the direction of the ranch. The pony dropped unconcernedly to the shuffling joy of habitual progression. Far away stretched the arc of our cordon. The most distant rider was a speck, and the cattle ahead of him were like maggots endowed with a smooth, swift onward motion. As yet the herd had not taken form. It was still too widely scattered. Its units, in the shape of small bunches, momently grew in numbers. The distant plains were crawling and alive with minute creatures, making toward a common tiny center. Immediately in our front the cattle at first behaved very well. Then far down the long, gentle slope I saw a break from the upper valley. The mannequin that represented Homer at once became even smaller as it departed in pursuit. The cattlemen moved down to cover Homer's territory until he should return, and I in turn edged farther to the right. 
then another break from another bunch. The cattleman rode at top speed ahead of before long he disappeared in the distant mesquite i found myself in sole charge of a front three miles long the nearest cattle were some distance ahead and trotting along at a good gait as they had not yet discovered the chances left open by unforeseen circumstance i descended and took in on my cinch while yet there was time even as i mounted an impatient movement on the part of experienced brown jug told me that the cattle had seen their opportunity i gathered the range and spoke to the horse he needed no further direction is set off at a wide angle, nicely calculated to intercept a truance. Brown Jug was a powerful beast. The spring of his leap was his whalebone. The yellow earth began to stream past like water. Always the pace increased with the growing thunder of hooves. It seemed that nothing could turn this from the straight line, nothing checked the headlong momentum of our rush. My eyes filled with tears from the wind of our going. Saddle strings streamed behind. Brown Jug's mane whipped my bridle band. Dimly I was conscious of soapweed, sacatone, mesquite as we passed them. They were abreast and gone before I could think of them or how they were to be dodged. Two antelope bounded away to the left. Birds rose hastily from the grasses. A sudden chirk, chirk, chirk rose all about me. We were in the very center of a prairie dog town. But before I could formulate in my mind the probabilities of holes and broken legs, the chirk, chirk, chirking had fallen astern. Round jug had skipped and dodged successfully. We were approaching the cattle. They ran stubbornly and well, evidently unwilling to be turned into the latest possible moment. A great rage at their obstinacy took possession of us both. A broad, shallow wash crossed our way, but we plunged through its rocks and boulders recklessly, angered at even the slight delay they necessitated. The hard land on the other side we greeted with joy. Brown Jug extended himself with a snort. Suddenly a jar seemed to shake my very head loose. I found myself staring over the horse's head directly down into a deep and precipitous gully, the edge of which was so cunningly concealed by the grasses as to have remained invisible to my blurred vision. Brown Jug, however, had caught sight of it at the last instant, and had executed one of the wonderful stops possible only to a cow pony. But already the cattle had discovered a passage above, and were scrambling down and across. Brown Jug and I, at more sober pace, slid off the almost perpendicular bank, and out the other side. A moment later we had headed them. They whirled, and without the necessity of any suggestion on my part, Brown Jug turned after them, and so quickly that my stirrup actually brushed the ground. After that we were masters. We chased the cattle far enough to start them well in the proper direction, and then pulled down to a walk in order to get a breath of air. But now we noticed another band, back on the ground, over which we had just come, doubling through in the direction of Mount Graham. A hard run set them to rights. We turned. More had poured out from the hills. Bands were crossing everywhere, ahead and behind. Brown Jug and I went to work. Being an indivisible unit, we could chase only one bunch at a time, and while we were after one, a half-dozen others would be taking advantage of our preoccupation. We could not hold our own. Each run after an escaping bunch had to be on a longer diagonal. Gradually we were forced back, and back, and back, but still we managed to hold the line unbroken. Never shall I forget the dash and clatter of that morning. Neither Brown Jug nor I thought for a moment of sparing horse flesh, nor of picking a route. We made the shortest line and paid little attention to anything that stood in the way. A very fever of resistance possessed us. It was like beating against a headwind, or fighting fire, or combating in any of the other great forces of nature. We were quite alone. The cattlemen and Homer had vanished. To our left the men were fully occupied in marshalling the compact brown herds that had gradually massed, for these antagonists of mine were merely outlying remnants. I suppose Brown Jug must have run nearly twenty miles with only one check. 
Then we chased a cow some distance and into the dry bed of a stream, where she whirled on us savagely. By luck her horn hit only the leather of my saddle skirts, so we left her, for when a cow has sense enough to get on the peck, there is no driving her farther. We gained nothing, and had to give ground, but we succeeded in holding a semblance of order, so that the cattle did not break and scatter far and wide. The sun had by now well risen, and was beginning to shine hot. Round Jug still ran gamely and displayed as much interest as ever, but he was evidently tiring. We were both glad to see Homer's gray showing in the fringe of mesquite. Together we soon succeeded in throwing the cows into the main herd, and, strangely enough, as soon as they had joined a compact band of their fellows, the wildness left them, and, convoyed by outsiders, they set themselves to plodding energetically toward the home ranch. As my horse was somewhat winded, I joined the drag at the rear. Here, by course of natural sifting, soon accumulated all the lazy, gentle, and sickly cows, and the small calves. The difficulty now was to prevent them from lagging and dropping out. To that end, we indulged in a great variety of the picturesque cow calls peculiar to the cowboy. One found an old tin can, which, by the aid of a few pebbles, he converted into a very effective rattle. The dust rose in clouds and aided in the sun. We slouched easily in our saddles. The cowboys compared notes as to the brands they had seen. Our ponies shuffled along, resting, but always ready for a dash and chase of an occasional bull calf or yearling with independent ideas of its own. Thus we passed over the country, down the long, gentle slope to the sink of the valley, whence another long, gentle slope ran to the base of the other ranges. At greater or lesser distances we caught the dust, and made out dimly the masses of the other herds collected by our companions, and by the party under Jed Parker. They went forward toward the common center, with a slow, ruminative movement, and the dust they raised went with them. Little by little they grew plainer to us, and the home ranch, hitherto merely a brown shimmer in the distance, began to take on definition as the group of buildings, windmills, and corrals we knew. Miniature horsemen could be seen galloping forward to the open white plain where the herd would be held. Then the mesquite enveloped us, and we knew little more, save the anxiety, lest we overlook laggards in the brush, until we came out on the edge of that same white plain. Here were more cattle, thousands of them, and billows of dust, and a great bellowing, and slim mounted figures riding and shouting ahead of the herd. Soon they succeeded in turning the leaders back. These threw into confusion those that followed. In a few moments the cattle had stopped. A cordon of horsemen sat at equal distances, holding the men. "'Pretty good haul,' said the man next to me. "'A good five thousand head.'" This is the end of Chapter 5.